is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Roscoff, coming to you from New York City. We've got a great group coming to us from all around America right now. In Also in New York City, we've got our usual Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security. How are you doing, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. Excellent. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, we have our friend Stephen Walt at Harvard University. Hi, Steve. Hi, David. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. And in Chicago, Illinois, at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, we have Ambassador Evo Dalder. How are you doing, Evo? I'm doing great. Coming to you from the capital of where we vote early and often. Not, well, don't say that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Rudy Giuliani will end up in your house within <laughs> moments. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and of course, in Washington, D.C., we have Dr. Kavita Patel, also regular during the week. She's waving because she doesn't know this is a podcast. Um, uh, <laughs> Instructions <laughs> required. Yes, David. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, hi, Kavita. How are you? Hi, David. I'm I'm in Washington D.C. where you, we have no rights, but we do get to vote. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Um, maybe that'll change, but my guess is not until 2023. Um, all right. So you know, for the past few years, and if you take this podcast and the one we were doing right before it, uh, that five years, almost. I would say 85% of the conversations have been about a person, and I'm not mentioning that person on this podcast. I've just decided that, you know, things have happened, and despite some efforts, which perhaps we'll talk about at the very end um, on behalf of that person's team, uh, the, the, the reality is that we're just weeks away from a new president of the United States. And that what we should be thinking about now is, what do we want from that president? Now, the president faces some hurdles. Democrats have a smaller majority in the House. Uh, and it's going to be a real uphill struggle for the Democrats to get a majority in the Senate, although one can hope. Um, and so what is very likely is that the Senate is going to be an obstacle for the new president. Uh, what I'd like to talk about is what do we, and each of you is an expert in different kind of areas, um, what would we like to see? What's our wish list from the Biden administration? 
And you can talk about anything. You talk about the kind of people they appoint. You can talk about what they prioritize in terms of policies that they can execute from the executive branch. You can talk about what they may, uh, what you may like to have them achieve uh, legislatively, if that's possible. Um, and 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 I'd like you to each sort of stay, you know, in the areas that you're most comfortable with. But if there's some other area you want to address, by all means, address it. Um, and uh, let me start with you, Kavita. And we'll go around a couple of times. But like, the, what is the one thing that you would like to see Joe Biden do on day one um, that'll tell to you we're in a new world? So I would love to see Joe Biden. The one thing that would be an incredibly bold initiative would be to actually call for legislation lowering the Medicare eligibility age. So public option aside, which obviously he campaigned on and has some policy paperwork around, I think that there is um, a very large group of people who could spend a lot of time arguing about that. Lowering the eligibility age in light of this pandemic, its effects on people who had to obtain employment through their, uh, obtain healthcare through their employer, for me, that would send an incredibly strong signal. And I'm gonna say something incredibly controversial on the Deep State Radio podcast, that if you could actually imagine a way to offer that eligibility to be somehow tied a little bit more to care advantage plans, I actually think that that's some that's a way to get Republicans maybe buy into it because that was originally in a Medicare Advantage Part C concept born out of Republicans, and they've stuck to it. And hard to say no to that. That's my big idea. That, first of all, that's great because it's a big idea, and secondly, because it deals with the political reality that we face, which is you, you can't just have any wish list. You've got to have one that's practical. Steve, what? What would what would top your wish list? Well, I think, first of all, Biden is in a real bind here. Uh, he can't do much on domestic policy for the reasons you indicated. The Senate won't go along with it unless uh, things flip in, in Georgia. Um, the problem is that, you know, he can do more in foreign policy, but most Americans don't care very much about foreign policy. And there's no big win out there. There is no low hanging fruit of such enormous importance that Americans will suddenly rally to the Democrats because Joe Biden has delivered some big foreign policy uh, victory. Um, so that's a real paradox for him. He can do things in foreign policy and Americans won't care. And he can't do things at home, which are badly needed. So what I want him to do on day one is rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. And I want him to do that for three reasons. First, it's a huge issue. And the United States cannot be on the wrong side of history on, on that vital issue. Second, it does send the signal to our traditional allies that the sort of the grown-ups with respect for science are back in charge. It won't solve all the issues that we have to resolve with them, but it does send a rather visible signal and something you can do. And then finally, it sends a, an important signal to China that even in an era where we're likely to be competing much more intensively with China, there are some issues that we want to wall off from that competition and cooperate on and climate is the most important one. So in a sense, a, a single act that gets us on the right, right side of history, gets us back in the good graces of some of our allies, and also tells China that yes, we're gonna compete with you, but not in every area, is not a bad thing to do on day one. No, oh, I did notice that um, Henry Kissinger yesterday said that it's absolutely vital that 
Biden step in and repair the China relationship or there will be a terrible crisis. And I'm old enough to know that every four years, Henry Kissinger has said this now for the past like 30 years. It's it's really it's it's kind of amazing. And it's kind of, I'm you know, he can continue to do it long after he's gone. Kind of weekend at Henry's where every four years we can play the tape over again. Evo, anything? What's on your What's on your wish list? Maybe the mayor of Chicago seems a former mayor seems to be a contender for Secretary of Transportation. I think that his wish wish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, he would be a very good Secretary of Transportation. Let me add. Uh, you know, Steve Stewart sort of stole stole my my thunder, but let me let me embroider on it slightly different. My wish list is that we rejoin the world. Uh, and because we, we, we walked away from the world, started to actually before Trump, but really accelerated uh, the retrenchment afterwards. And, and one way is the Paris, uh, uh, getting back into the Paris Agreement, uh, I, I would argue actually taking a new, much more aggressive leadership role on climate, actually learn something from Boris Johnson. Uh, who has just announced a major climate initiative, for example, uh, banning the importation of gas uh, uh, engine cars by 2035. Uh, just think about what that would do to, to industry here at home. But I'd add one other one uh, as, the, as part of this rejoining, and, and that would be my initiative in addition to rejoining Paris. And that is uh, uh, to join the international effort to distribute vaccines to the world. And it is stunning that the entire world, including the Chinese, have gotten together financially uh, with corporations, with uh, the Gates Foundation, uh, with the European Union and so many other countries to try to figure out how you get a, a vaccine to everybody around the world. And the United States is the only country that is not part of it. We and you know, Operation Warp Speed has uh, significant problems, but we have invested majorly on the vaccine area uh, and uh, bringing that knowledge and that capability to the rest of the world uh, is something that one, would be very good for the world, two, would be very good for the global economy, and three, would do an extraordinary thing for American standing in the world. Uh, so I'd, I'd do that if I were Joe Biden. I knew there was a reason I wanted to do this because it's making me feel better. It's like therapeutic <laughs> instead of all of these episodes where it's like, you know, what awful thing is going to happen next? You know, you guys, you care about people and the world. And it's like, let's, let's make it healthier. Let's make people healthier. It's really kind of uplifting. Um, what about you, Ryan? What would you like to see on top of your, your wish list from your perch? Yes. My thought is um, that the Biden administration views the last four years as like the Watergate crisis. And then we have a post-Watergate moment in which one thing he could do is in fact do something that's not usually comfortable for the executive branch, but to cede power to Congress and start to recreate structures that are not just based on norms, but statutes in which Congress, I think, would have a real appetite for greater control or oversight of the executive branch. So just to like reel off of several of them, like emergency powers, we've seen the abuse of that. So the legislation could actually define what is an emergency or create sunsets or war powers, uh, restoring the balance of Congress being involved in authorizations for force, um, arms sales to places like the Saudis in the Yemen war, have it requiring certification that our foreign partners aren't 
not engaging in massive uh, humanitarian law violations, uh, inspector generals uh, getting statutory language that requires the executive to only be able to fire them on the basis of cause, um, beefing up the Hatch Act. <laughs> you know, it's just like I've got a, several of these, but they basically all do amount to the executive ceding um, some of its authority and working with Congress to rebalance the separation of power. You guys are all being so thoughtful for Mitch too. I really, I really admire you for like thinking how can we make Mitch's day. But he, I, he would go, he would go for this stuff. Uh, and I think that's a really, you know, good suggestion that probably plays to instincts that Biden has. Uh, the biggest mugs game in Washington, and every single one of us has been guilty of this at some point in our life, is trying to pick cabinets and who's going to get what job. I mean, it's you're, one is always wrong. Um, and there's always surprises and, you know, politics enters in, in weird ways. What we've seen so far from Biden's choices, uh, our friend Ron McLean as, as, as chief of staff and, and the, the deputy chiefs of staff and advisors and counselors and so forth has been very much what you would have expected. Washington professionals know their jobs extremely well. Ron Klain is probably the most qualified person to be chief of staff since James Baker did it the second time, because Ron has been chief of staff for both Biden and uh, Al Gore as vice president. Uh, and, and very conventional choices. Not, no, there's nothing that's sort of, you know, shocking to us. Um, but without, I mean, if you want to get into specifics of people, that's fine. But Kavita, what would you look for in key appointments in the areas that concern you that would be a signal like this person would mean we're going this way and that person mean we're going a different way yeah i i, I so by the way one of the leading um contenders to be potentially in the cabinet as secretary of health and human services is someone who i've had the pleasure of knowing uh dr vivek Murthy, who's been prominently one of the co-chairs of the coronavirus task force for biden harris and was prominently featured during the democratic national committee virtual meeting at very eloquent former surgeon general and um i think in that you're looking for so i i was looking for even if it's all dirty rumor someone who is um credible qualified but brings a bit of an edge because he's not considered a kind of a quote dc insider and quite the opposite i i would also say that having worked with then senator biden uh when i worked in the senate you know there's there's just a familiarity with how things get in washington so i have not been surprised to see Ron Klain surround himself with people that he's had a long working history with. And I would expect that cabinet members will reflect, I think the strongest cabinet members closest to the Venn diagram of circles will be in foreign policy and in kind of judicial matters, because that's certainly where Senator and then and Vice President Biden really had an incredible force. I don't think of him as a domestic policy person in terms of healthcare, but with COVID, have seen him are obviously put a priority on that. So I'm I'm looking for people that can make deals in, in a town like Washington and have that familiarity, but also for him to acknowledge that 2020, especially with the choice of Kamala Harris as a vice president, um, signals something different. And I and I think you'll sprinkle some of that throughout not just cabinets, but other political appointees as well. I have to say one of the things that uh, you can also read something in 
to perhaps is that his transition teams are extremely diverse. Mm-hmm. Lots yep. of women, lots of people of color, very right. uh, more so than than we've ever seen before. Steve, how can you like look at the chicken entrails of foreign policy and national security personnel and 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 how will you read them? Well, there's there's several parts to this. I mean, first of all, I think there's going to be a bit of a musical chairs problem because Biden does have a very experienced team with lots of uh, long resumes and you can't find jobs of sufficient stature for all of them. Mm. All right. There are several plausible candidates, say, to be secretary of state. They all look sort of equally qualified in terms of their CVs, but only one person gets that job. And there aren't seven or eight other jobs of equal status. So there's going to be a few people scrambling around at the end of this uh, without speculating as who those might be. Um, the second thing to remember. Oh, go, is go that, on, speculate. Uh, no, I really Stick don't. your neck I, out. I, Just I, here, here. I, I, let me let me help you. Michelle Flournoy will probably be Secretary of Defense. That's that's probably true. I'll, okay, I'm that's not as far gonna, as I'm, no, you, I'm not, not going to take odds on that. But but in any case, the other thing to remember here is that this is a president who, let's just say, is not young. Right. And he's going to have to rely upon subordinates, particularly in foreign policy. He's not hopping on Air Force One every three weeks to jet off to some other part of the world, especially in the midst of a pandemic. He's going to have to delegate. So the team will really matter. For me, the big question is, to what extent does he appoint anyone who uh, comes from what you might call the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Uh, the Sanders wing played nice during the election. They they supported uh, Biden all the way despite you know resentments, whatever. You look at his foreign policy team; it does not look like the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party or the AOC wing of the Democratic Party. It seems to me if that group is completely shut out of any significant foreign policy appointments, they will be somewhat resentful of that. And then suddenly Biden has some problems on his left flank, which he doesn't need in a period where the right is not going to be helping him either. So I'll be interested to see if there's any uh, any attempts to at least symbolically show that that's a part of the party you want to hang on to. Um, that's a good point. I'd, I'd like to come back to it. Eva, what is your sense on these kind of issues? So let me make sort of two two points. One, uh, uh, it's true there are about 26 people who would like to be and would be equally qualified to be Secretary of State. And I think rather than figuring out which of the 26 get it, the question should be, what do we do with the other 25? And I think, I, I think Biden has an extraordinary opportunity to take a very, a, 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 a large group of people who uh, would like to find a way to contribute to rebuilding America's image in the world and use them. So think about how many people could be uh, ambassador in Moscow or in an allied capital, or importantly, in Beijing. Uh, You could take a whole bunch of these people who could be secretary of state and send them to Beijing instead, or be uh, the negotiator for uh, a the, the next round on climate or on the vaccines or or negotiating with the Russians on the next uh, nuclear arms control agreement or engaging with the Koreans or, or the Iranians. There's a there's a there's a lot of people and there's a lot of talent uh, that is out there and and uh, you know send people back to embassies who've done it before. Uh, even if they didn't give him a lot of money, might be a good way to 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 change things. That's one. The second is, I would take a very serious look 
at uh, our military leadership. And our military leadership has been, uh, um, uh, you know, they've all grown up in the 20, last 20 years of war. And I would say, where's the change? Where's some, you know, use the reality that uh, all appointments for senior positions are two years, even though we always roll them over and make them four years and say, no, let's make some change. So chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, how about uh, General, General Brown, the new head of the Air Force, uh, first, first man of, uh, of color to lead a, a service in the United States in 245 years? Um, think about new about our military leadership, not because they've done anything wrong, uh, per se, in a political or other sense, uh, although you could have, make, have an argument about that, but actually to think about how do, we, how do we have a different image and a different set of principles and a different set of priorities? Maybe people who have spent their entire lives in the Middle East, uh, at least their, their, their three or four star lives in the Middle East. If you listen to H.R. McMaster or Dave Petraeus, uh, or, or those are the people who have been around for a long time and their deputies are now the three and four stars. Are those the people we really want to be leading in the military in the future? Not quite sure you do. So there's an opportunity there uh, to have a change uh, as well. Final point. Um, I know Michelle Flournoy is the person who everybody thinks is going to get it and I put money on it. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to be somebody else. Okay. Well, you've, you've, uh, you've covered the under on that one. And, and uh, <laughs> um, uh, I guess that's always a bet because I think one of the points that you guys make properly is there are a lot of people. And so it's going to be musical chairs. And as soon as you fill one post, a whole bunch of other people are going to say, no, it's going to have to be me. Um, and, uh, you know, the competition for DNI could end up being really fierce after state and defense and the national security advisor are dealt with, you know. And, um, and, and David and, and Evo, the problem is these are people with egos and hardly anybody wants to accept a job that isn't a step up or at least a step sideways. Nobody wants to take a job that is less status. It's, it's happened a few times, but it's not the norm. Yeah, I think it's true. And I think, by the way, I, I, I think Evo's point is if, if Joe Biden decided that he was going to say, look, we have to re-engage with the world, we have to lead it again, and I want to send out the, you know, the, the A-team, right, the you know, Avengers assemble and go out into the various um, uh, uh, capitals of the world because it's that important. That would, you know, there are going to be a lot of people who would step up for that, and that would send an important message. Ryan, what about in in the areas that you're following, particularly in 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 DOJ and in related areas? What would you like to see, and how will you interpret what you see? Um, I guess just three kind of quick points. Or one is for the, the DOD. I do think that Biden has an historic opportunity to appoint a woman uh, as Secretary of Defense. And Michelle Flournoy obviously uh, would also come in with instant credibility within the building, not only having served in such a senior position in the Obama administration, but it's well known that Mattis wanted her to be his deputy. So I think that would be significant and that credibility important if indeed Biden is going to try to do things like end the forever wars or something like that, that he needs somebody like that in that position. Um, 
And then I also, somewhat echoing what's already been said, uh, Ed Luce had this piece this week that I noticed also in like Steve Walt's Twitter feed, he uh, retweeted it um, as well, in which Ed was saying, you know, are they, are they, are, is the Biden team just going to settle back into the status quo ex ante, like how they left things? Because the repudiation of Trump, at least in foreign policy, means that they were right in a certain sense, and they can just restore what was there before. And that's such a missed opportunity, uh, rather than thinking much more boldly um, in that domain. And I, I worry about that. And I also worry about, uh, to be honest, a sense of self-assurance on the part of some of those people, um, that they did things so well and so right, and that you know, they've now been endorsed for having done so, and now they're back to continue where they left off, um, rather than reckoning um, with some of the significant mistakes that were made. Uh, during those eight years. So I think those two, and then I guess, you know, the one piece for the Justice Department is, is it a person who, and I'll just say this as a, as a matter, not as a normative, like what I would prescribe, but just descriptively standing back and observing, is it a person who will be independent with respect to the question of accountability for crimes committed, alleged, allegedly committed by Trump and Trump associates over the past four years and prior in terms of uh, tax crimes. That I think is uh, really quite significant because it sounds like Biden is already kind of weighing in by putting a bit of a thumb on the scale of not moving down the path of accountability um, from you know, recent news reports about what he's thinking. Yeah, and so in that respect, Preet Bharara or Sally Yates might send one message, whereas Doug Jones might send another, uh, or somebody's more political. Yeah. Is that, is that right? Is that I think that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, don't you, I mean, are we, I, I guess I shouldn't kind of shout out the elephant in the room. Senate confirmation will matter, obviously. So are there any factors that would change those names, Ryan, or well, to anybody, you know, because of Senate dynamics, if we march this out and Democrats don't have control, actually, even if they do have control, we've seen even when there is uh, a pretty divided Senate that can still bend to the will of certain more moderate candidates, you know, for example, not a pre who might be the right choice, but you do want somebody that's a little bit, you know, more familiar and less, although Preet worked for Schumer. So there's a lot of good Senate ties there, but that can be a dynamic that people forget. And, and I, I, I never discount the fact that you have congressional members, you have people who have their own people they want to put forward, not for necessarily the top cabinet jobs, but all of that kind of comes into the mix. Yeah. And they're going to be, there, there will be sacrificial lambs. Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell will determine that a couple of these people will not get confirmed. I think a couple of the people who are on that list of 25 people on the national security side are not confirmable if the Republicans win in Georgia, for example. Um, so all of you guys have been uh, in, close to, involved with past Democratic administrations. Um, you know, it's just, just the five of us talking here. Wh wh where, where do you expect or where do you fear Biden administration is going to screw up? Kavita. Where I fear that they will screw up is by trying too much to please Congress. And 
I will say it, it's something I worried about with Obama as well, that we saw sometimes inactivity because of uh, a lack of support, even from the Democratic caucus on certain issues. I mean, you'll recall that the Affordable Care Act, I'm the health care person, it's not obvious. Um, you'll recall the Affordable Care Act almost got derailed because of some sentiments from members of the caucus on the Democratic side, as well as Rahm Emanuel, from the chief of staff, who were concerned that it was just too much of an overreach and sacrificing other parts of the agenda. So I worry that some of the bill, the big, bold things that we have to do could get sacrificed and unfortunately left behind because we just don't have the courage or the conviction or that we want to see the more moderate voice come out. Or alternatively, we want so hard to find balance between the progressives and the moderates. And at the end of the day, you can't please everybody and you have to do things. And I'm hoping Biden is that kind of person to know that. I just hope that uh, Ron Klain and the people around him remind him of that. What about you, Steve? Uh, so the thing that worries me most is is uh, the thing that always worries me and worried me when Obama came in. Uh, so I'm like Kissinger. I have my thing every uh, new administration. And that's that they try to do too much, that they walk in and they say, OK, we're going to go back into the world and we're going to fix NATO and we're going to confront China, but not too much. And we're going to get out of Afghanistan and we're going to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal and 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 and. And they end up getting almost none of those things uh, accomplished because they don't set a clear set of priorities and they don't try to stick to them. Uh, as I said before, I don't think there are big popularity wins on the foreign policy front anyway. And I guess what I'm hoping is that they, um, they do enough in foreign policy to keep things quiet and then they get a few lucky breaks, right? The COVID pandemic comes to an end, the American economy rebounds rather rapidly. There are no surprises in foreign policy, and they can flip the Senate in uh, 2022. And then you can do a lot of the big things that you might want to do here at home. But that suggests that you want to keep foreign policy quiet and not give Fox News a lot of hostages by plunging back into, say, the Iran nuclear deal and trying to re-engineer foreign policy in lots of big ways. Um, I worry that they'll try to do too much, which was my uh, concern with Obama way back when, and uh, is usually a concern. Eva. So uh, I thought Steve was going to say what I was going to say. So now I don't. Now I don't. I'm not worried about that anymore. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I worry that we will on the foreign policy side. Uh, worry a lot on the domestic policy side, and, and, and agreed with Kavita that de Democrats are great at negotiating with themselves, which is why they get nothing done. Um, uh, uh, and that's and that's a worry. But on, on the on the foreign policy side, and I actually think that Biden's inclination is right, which is the Middle East is the last place we need to get back to. So if we rejoin the world, let's just not do it in the Middle East. Let's do that sort of later. And I worry about the uh, the the blob, the establishment uh, that we talked about coming back. Of, Maybe I'm a member of that, but I, on, at least at this point, I don't agree with it. Um, uh, coming back and sort of re-engaging in, in the Middle East. And just, just remember Obama. I mean, Obama became president for one reason only, which is that he had been against the Iraq war. And it, was, it gave him the credibility to then launch the rest of the campaign and, in fact, to beat all the other Democrats. And we do. We spend 70% of our National Security Council principal committees and deputy meetings talking about the Middle East. 
and and it it's a time suck. It's a it 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 sucks everything out of your foreign policy. So if we don't do that, then actually there are a couple of things we could do. Uh, whether it's in Asia or in Europe or indeed, as as Biden has said in Central America, uh, and dealing with some of the bigger global issues. But my worry is that the natural pull into the Middle East and to be nice to the Saudis and make sure that we stand up to the Iranians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, will just pull us in there, never mind what we do with Israel. I guess the two things I'm concerned about, one is, uh, uh, in addition to these others, uh, the federal judiciary, um, so that I don't want Biden to cede ground to McConnell if the Republicans do uh, remain in control of the Senate the same way that Obama did in the final couple of years of his administration. And I think that that requires taking to the political airways in order to uh, say that he has a mandate to put in his people, having you know elections uh, have consequences type uh, matters. And then, uh, you know, after 2022, maybe that's even easier. But I think that, that it's, it's just so remarkable to me that it's not even featured, it would go silent uh, in terms of as an issue in democratic debates and the like. And I think it's vitally important if you see the makeup of the current federal judiciary that's taken place. And then I guess the second one is I, I worry a lot about all the sources of disinformation that have been associated with Trump and that he remains a very uh, active ingredient in a political discourse in the media environment. And I'm just not sure that the White House is equipped to handle that. Um, and, and I think one just a wild card in that is um, if uh, Donald Trump is indicted by New York authorities um, in the next year, then I'm not sure how much of a, a player he will be uh, in the Republican party. Uh, with that. But other than that, I think that I don't, it's a, such a difficult um, calculation on their part about how to handle him that I worry that that will not be handled well. Let me, let me pick up on that as the sort of the last round of questions that we've got here. I said, I was not going to talk about the horrors associated with the president and, and, and dwell on that. But Ryan brings up a, a, a point. Um, into the next administration uh, that's related to what we're seeing in terms of the Republican efforts to delegitimize the current election. Uh, and that is that the dysfunctional politics of the United States are going to... Um, Biden won. Uh, he, he had a substantial popular vote margin, probably will um, get up in the neighborhood of... of uh, 8 million votes. Democrats are like, that's gigantic. It's actually not gigantic in US history. There have been 15 or 16 more uh, larger margins in, 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 in US history. Uh, Democrats did poorly in the House. They did poorly in the Senate. They did poorly in the state houses. Uh, Trump got 73 million votes. So there has been no repudiation of Trumpism or McConnellism or, you know, you know, tactics like shutting down the judiciary during during Obama or corruption or any of these other things, and it seems likely that that's going to continue. And I'd just like to go around to each of you and say, how do you think that is going to affect 
the next administration? Kavita. Oh, I so I'm obviously obsessed with our response to COVID, and I'm terrified of the delays in vaccine distribution, not to the healthcare workers and kind of the 1A group that's been identified, but to the mass public. And then to Evo's point about kind of joining the world, if we're just, if we are so behind on vaccination strategy, just for our own people and priority populations, it will equally distract us from being able to do kind of what we would need to do as we rejoin the World Health Organization and try to help get the entire world vaccinated. And then we miss the clock, David, and then we come back around to kind of a resurgence in parts of the world based on disparities in income and color of your skin. So I'm terrified that uh, this incompetency currently even at the staff level on a career staff level, holding the career staff back from sharing documents is going to do us so much damage. Ready to you, Steve, that, you know, there's a day, it's January 21st, Joe Biden is gonna wake up, Donald Trump's not gonna be president and problems are still gonna be there. Yeah. No, this I've been worried for now several that the biggest problems we faced were not on the global stage. They were what we were doing to uh, each other. And the trickiest part is uh, how do you call out those people who are fueling division and dysfunction without simply making the problem worse? Because you're essentially, uh, you know, also can be accused of being uh, divisive. I agree with Kavita. I think that the absolutely single most important thing for the Biden administration to get right in the first year is the response to the pandemic, right? If they can distribute vaccines, which do now appear to be available, we, we think we're going to have them. If they can get them out to the American people in a timely, efficient, uh, and reasonably equitable fashion, then all sorts of good things flow from that. If they screw that up, then they're in deep trouble, right? Particularly if other countries are managing to do a better job of it. It seems to me if they get that uh, done, if that, of course, has the uh, obvious and direct positive effect on the economy, then they're going to be in very, very good shape. And their message vis-a-vis uh, -vis their uh, Republican rivals will be saying, look, we're all about making the American people safer, healthier and more prosperous. And we've done that. Right. And I think at that point, they're beautifully positioned for 2022. But it all hinges on taking a technology that is now available and making it available to everyone as rapidly as possible. Yeah, and by the way, and we've talked about this in the past, uh, Kavita, the, you know, the, the, the governors can play a role in this too. You know, mm -hmm. Bob Biden can do whatever he wants. And Christy Nome, uh -huh. who by the way, gets my vote as the worst governor in America right now. Uh, and, it's, and it was a con hot contest. But, you know, she, she, she can just say, no, you know, we're not doing this. Or Mitch McConnell can, as the Republicans have recently done, say, we're not doing a blue state bailout. And instead of saying we're not going to help people who are hard hit by this, they're going to spin it in a different way. Uh, Evo, to, 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 how, do, how does the dysfunction in American politics enter into this, do you think? Well, I mean, big time, uh, of course, because we, we, we've seen this this movie so many times and 
Well, I agree that getting COVID and, and, and I think there's a lot actually that is the, as the executive branch, you can do working with private companies and states and localities and private hospitals and, and distribution centers. So I, I think if you want to figure out how to do this, it's a solvable problem. Um, now that the biggest thing uh, has been solved, if you have a vaccine that's 95% effective, that's pretty darn significant. If it was 50% effective, it'd be a very different kind of uh, way to think about it. But I, 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 I push it to an attitudinal issue. You know, Republicans are very good at exercising power, even when they don't deserve to exercise it. To quote Mitch McConnell, we won the election and therefore we can do whatever the hell we want to do. And Democrats need to start governing in the same way. We won the election. And so go out and do it. Govern. So take the federal judiciary point that Ryan made. Don't accept the, 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 the idea that, you know, because McConnell controls everything, make it a big political, a political movement and say, we won and, we, and, and, and we're going to do whatever it is that we think is the right thing for the American people and, and, gov and can govern like the Republican, which is make it a campaign. And make it part and parcel of what you're uh, of what you're doing, rather than thinking that governing, which is what it really is supposed to be, is a compromise and working together with the other side. Well, the other side doesn't want to to work with you. The other side, in fact, you know, it used to be that you used to run for elections and in order to govern. Now we're governing for elections in order to win. The government governing in order to win. It's, it's, you know, we we don't govern anymore. The Republicans don't do that. We need to take a lesson from their playbook. Let's not negotiate with ourselves. Let's, let's, let's put forward our own ideas, push, use social media. Trump showed how effective it was. You may not like it, but it worked uh, in order to make our point uh, or as the, you know, the Democrats point uh, and, and, and make that at the center. Just don't be so afraid. Here, here. Ryan. I'll just continue on that exact same note because um, I think it's such a fundamental point and therefore disagree with your premise, David, which is I think that it was a huge win uh, for Biden. And if you told me in 2018 that the Democratic candidate would not only beat Trump, but flip back uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and then flip Arizona and Georgia, I'd be um, in disbelief about that. And then I think, you know, more of the mandate needs to be about the popular vote and the st structural political inequality within, the, within our country. The idea that the Senate, because there's a majority of Republican senators represents the American public when we know that to be false, um, buys into that false understanding about where the American public is at the moment um, and how much of a vote share uh, with gerrymandering and the like is needed for Democrats to actually win House seats as well. The heavy weight of public opinion and the direction for the country is behind uh, Biden's win. And, the and I would think of it in large respects as a repudiation of Trump himself. I think a lot of people did not vote for Joe Biden. They voted to turn the page on Trump. And that is a very significant um, headwind for the presidency to operate on that um, understanding. 
Can I just just I, I don't want to get arguendo here about this whole thing because you're you're entitled to your opinion and of course Biden winning is the big deal but if you look at Georgia, Nevada, Arizona and Wisconsin the total margin there is still just tens of thousands of votes. It could easily have gone the other way. And when you take that in the context of what happened in the Senate, the House uh losing one governorship, losing uh grounded state houses um, and having it be so close when the president of the United States was the worst president in history, obviously corrupt and impeached. I, I just don't think that's a fabulous result. I, I want to pile on there. And in the midst of a pandemic that they mismanaged and with unemployment you know, at relatively high levels, uh, it's a miracle uh, that they did as, that the GOP did as well as it did. So I, I totally, while agreeing, and, and, and importantly, I think, I think it's actually 50,000 votes if they flipped in the right states would have given the Electoral College to Donald Trump, only underscores what I think is the essential point, which is that we have a electoral system that is a, a, an entire system that is geared to let the minority rule. Right. And, and it, can't have a system where 50,000 votes could have turned an election that was lost by 8 million. And, mm -hmm. and making that argument and actually governing on the principle that we won. George Bush, who last I looked, lost the popular vote and only won by 537 votes in, uh, uh, in 2000, governed as if he had a landslide mandate. No. <laughs> we have a landslide popular vote, then maybe we ought to govern that way rather than saying, oh my God, all these problems, we can't get anything through Congress. And are, are you saying that we should govern like the Bush administration? <laughs> no, I think but we, a little bit of confidence, but a little bit of confidence in your policies and pushing them through is not a bad idea. Yeah, no, I think there's too much um, negotiating with ourselves and and ceding ground to them without fighting for this stuff and 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 the point carries through you know the uh if if the republicans win both seats in georgia mm -hmm. the democratic minority will still represent 20 million more people than the republican majority uh which is a flaw in our constitution that by the way is not going to get fixed and worries me deeply uh, in the remaining four minutes we've got here, I would like to each of you to answer a one-minute question. Um, and that is, well, what do you think the Biden administration is going to do better than the Obama administration did? Kavita. I think that the Biden administration is, uh, if you think about the Obama administration and the people around him with incredibly strong Chicago, very, I would say, kind of domestic focus, um, I saw firsthand where kind of our international side was not necessarily where we led in, in terms of strength, despite prominent people like Samantha Power, et cetera. So I would offer that we're going to see the converse. And, and in, just to Evo's point, re, America has rejoined the world, I think is going to be kind of the underscore of everything that Joe Biden does and how he is even carried in the press around the world. And, and that will be better. I think Kavita is correct. So that sets the bar higher for you guys, Steve. 
<laughs> well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, you know, my view on this is that the Obama administration did not cover itself in glory in its handling of foreign policy, even over eight years. There were some uh, definite right. accomplishments and there were a lot of things that they screwed up. But let's not forget that President Obama got a Nobel Peace Prize in his first year as president <laughs> because the world was so relieved to say goodbye to George W. Bush. Well, we're gonna see something similar uh, this time around. The world, I don't think Biden will get a Nobel Peace Prize in his first year, but you'll have that same exhale uh, in lots of, uh, of different places as well. Um, I hope that the, uh, the sort of new, uh, the giving the Obama team a second chance, they've, uh, they've learned from it. Here's what I think they'll do better because they couldn't do worse. I think they will do a better job of actually selling what they are doing to the American people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yes, President Obama was reelected and he was pretty popular by the end. If he could have done a third term, I think he would have won one. But I don't believe they did a particularly good job of actually selling what they were accomplishing, particularly the economic recovery that they managed uh, when uh, after 2009. And so I am hoping that the Biden team has learned that you can't just go out and govern, as we all agree they ought to do here. You have to also have a sales pitch uh, that explains why what you're doing is in the best interests of the American people, including the people on the other side of the aisle, and gradually win those over. So I'm hoping that they have a better uh, social media presence, a better uh, public relations office, and they spend a little bit more time doing that than the Obama team did. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I remember having a conversation with a very senior member of Congress during the 2012 election. And again, this is somebody who's an Obama supporter, but they were like, he doesn't run with us in the Congress. He won't appear on the stage with us. He's running himself. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't sort of, you know, playing for the team. Uh, and, and that was a concern. And, and, you know, again, it's impossible to look back at Obama without nostalgia at this point. Uh, but I'm just I'm just wondering what we'll do better, Evo. So I think all this knocking of Obama's foreign policy is fine, but just remember the first four years of NATO were terrific. Just want to put that on. Yeah, the no, I, th I, 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 I meant to establish that. <laughs> I, before. I heard there was some great leadership there. Great the leadership in, in NATO. Yeah, you heard, you heard that objective appraisal first here. Very. <laughs> put that <without>. out. <laughs> so um, I I think. Uh, and, and I, I hope, but I also think this will be, I, I think the immigration policy mm. uh, will be significantly better, in part because it wasn't very good under Obama. Uh, but I think um, we have now learned how to use executive power to change uh, a hell of a lot on the immigration side. And then I think you do that in the first two years. If you do uh, get Congress either now in Georgia or otherwise, if uh, you maintain Congress in 2022, which, by the way, is a taller order than winning in Georgia, just FYI. Uh, in, in uh, just by history. But if you're able to do that, you can then do it legislatively. The American public on immigration is overwhelmingly in favor of a sensible immigration policy, including giving a path to citizenship of the 11 million people who, who are here undocumented. Uh, and there is no reason why you shouldn't uh, have an immigration policy that's based on doing the right thing. And I don't see any reason why Biden wouldn't. Uh, yeah, it's true. And we, and we remember Obama deported twice as many people in f his first four years as Bush did in eight, eight years. So Obama started slow on that front, certainly. Ryan. Um, I suppose there will not be as significant naivete about where Mitch McConnell and the Republicans and the hell are coming from. So 
I, my, my hope is that they do not enter into those negotiations the same way that Obama ended up doing time and again and are much more realistic about who's on the other side of the aisle. But wait a minute, wasn't Joe Biden the guy who was supposed to be leading those conversations? Um, no matter what, I think they've learned from those eight years and then the past four years about what's happening within the Republican Party. Yeah, and you know, all we need to do is remind people to go to the Obama biography, autobiography just out uh, and where it refers to his conversation with McConnell in which he's explaining why they should compromise and McConnell response is something to the effect of uh, you, you, you're under the mistaken impression that I care. You know, he's, he's, it was extremely cold. And uh, I, I, I think that's certainly an area where we're going to have to have to pay attention. And in that respect, Brian's comment dovetails with the ones that Evo was making earlier. Well, look, you guys are extremely smart, thoughtful, experienced, wise. That NATO policy was excellent in those first four years. Um, and, uh, I, I, and, and by the way, if I were room raider, as I look at this on the Zoom, all of you would get eight out of 10, even though Kavita is cheating with a backdrop. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you're, this is a great discussion. And frankly, it's one of the first discussions I've heard recently where we've talked about what we would normally be talking about during a transition, Amen. which is what's the next administration going to be like? Uh, pros, cons, what would we like to see? Um, and hopefully we will start doing that because, you know, all these shenanigans and Rudy Giuliani's hair dye running down his <laughs> Uh, and I don't even understand that. Like Giuliani and, and Trump are like rich and Trump's hair looks ridiculous and he's orange and Rudy Giuliani has hair dye running down. And they live in New York. I mean, don't they know anybody to, who could help them do this better? Um, in any event, you know, all that shenanigans are going to be over and starting in January 21st, there's going to be a new administration. I think by listening to you guys talk, uh, I, people have come away with a, a better perspective on what that may be like. And uh, I'm grateful to you for joining us. Grateful to everybody for listening. If you want to see what else we've got coming up, we'll do a show next Monday and then not for Thanksgiving. And then we'll be back uh, to normal the following week. Go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you want, sign up, become a member, support what we're doing, buy some gifts in the store for Christmas coming soon. Um, nothing like a deep state radio mask to melt the heart of whomever heart you wanted melted. Uh, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye bye. Stay healthy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top expert policymakers and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. 
You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout. 